Acts chapter 19, verse number 11. Scripture says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So Father, I just ask you for a special touch for the next 30, 40 minutes. I just... I pray, Lord, not only a touch on, on the teaching, but, but, Father, on every ear that's going to listen and hear this, both right now and then later through the streams of media, I'm just asking you, Lord, to awaken us to this wild passage of Scripture and instruct us in the portion that we need to hear. I pray, Father, for your children to really consider that an anointing is available for each of us to be engaged in powerful ministry that manifests a victory and an authority over the realm of darkness through the name and the power and the blood of Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we'd also be instructed, even warned, that we can't play around with the name of your Son. And we can't play around with darkness apart from lives, Lord, that are holy and consecrated and filled. So we, we, we yield to you right now and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul is doing missionary work and he comes to the city of Ephesus, which in Paul's day in the first century was an amazing place to live for a lot of different reasons. You had the Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And that's not a temple that you and I as believers would feel very comfortable in. It was a temple that was dedicated to intense immorality and heathen practices of worship. But the whole city of Ephesus was steeped in that kind of culture. If you, talk, if you took the sexuality of Las Vegas, um, the violence of New York, uh, the wealth of California 
and um, kind of the occult of some of the, maybe even some of the places where I, like where I was born in Miami, where there's a lot of uh, Santeria and different kind of things going on. If you took all of those intensely dark elements and fused them all together, you could name that fusion the city of Ephesus. It was an incredibly decadent place to live. And the Holy Spirit called Paul to go there and live there for a while and make disciples unto Jesus Christ. And so that's what he was doing. And he was doing what he always did. He'd start out in a city by going and finding the synagogue, and he'd start preaching the Messiah to the Jewish people of that city. But of course, in Ephesus, his ministry was expanding. It wasn't only to Jews, but it was to Gentiles also. And so you talk about a guy who just had incredible kingdom backbone. Paul didn't look for the place where the gospel was already rich and prevalent and flowing. Paul went into the darkest heart of the Roman Empire at that time, where there was nothing safe according to the flesh. And he said, the darkest place is the place that needs the greatest light. And so he took the message of Jesus there. And so we're sharing a little bit tonight about what God did through him there, but we're also showing you what happens when people try to jump on the bandwagon of what God is doing, and they're not equipped or ready, not even, in this case, saved, but they're trying to approach the, the, the kingdom of God with superstition and abracadabras that, and all they met with, in this case, these seven rogue exorcists, all they met with was a sound defeat. And so there's a lot of room for us to learn tonight, so let's look at it. Um, let's start out with what I'm calling the power of the true believer, and that's represented by Paul there. And I just want you to, to know this. There's nothing in the Bible that says what I'm about to tell you from the scriptures is no longer available. There's nothing in the Bible that says that was then, but this is now. And so don't make this history, make this kind of like hunger in your life. What am I talking about? Well, first of all, there was a series of miracles that was going on. The scripture says very plainly that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And so this is very simple. You've seen this before. You've seen it in scripture. Some of you have seen it in your own life. But there was the apostle Paul in that city, and he was endued with the power of God to the extent that when he laid his hands on people, when he came and approached them, whether they were demonically afflicted, whether they were sick, whether they were physically afflicted, he had the power of God to do greater works. Jesus said that, the works that I do, you're going to do, and even greater works you will do. That's the word of God. Jesus taught his disciples that when he went back to heaven, they would do the same works that he did, but they would do even greater works. And so this greater work is seen as that Paul is going around, he's laying his hands on people, and people are being healed instantly by the hands of Paul. They're being delivered from demonic power through the power of God in Paul's life. Now, that's, that's pretty amazing in and of itself, but there, it doesn't unpack it enough for me. I, I want to say, um, say, Luke, tell us more as you're writing, because he uses this phrase. He says not just miracles, but extraordinary miracles. I mean, I just settle for kind of like an average miracle. That'd be good. I didn't see a miracle. I'll take an average miracle, but this is a season of, of extraordinary miracles. How, how miraculous does something have to be to where the Holy Spirit, as Luke's writing the book of Acts, Holy Spirit says, uh, make sure they know it's a, uh, an extraordinary miracle. I mean, I, give me some of that. I want to see some of that. I believe that God can unlock that and unleash it. But, but go on a little further because we're actually told a little bit about what that might have looked like. And so we see the special anointing that Paul had. So these extraordinary miracles involved at least this even handkerchiefs 
are aprons that had touched his skin, Paul's skin. They were carried away to the sick. And so somebody tell me, let me see how many Bible students, what did Paul do for a living? He made tents. Paul was a bivocational apostle missionary uh, prophet. And so he worked all day so that he didn't ever get accused of doing ministry for money. And he, he made tents. And so when he did that, he would have sweat aprons he would, or sweat handkerchiefs. He would have an apron that he would wear to cover his tunic. And apparently his anointing was so intense that somehow they learned that if they took the very fabric that had touched Paul's body or his hands, they could take that and lay it upon the sick and the sick would be healed. Now, I'm sure you do that like three or four times a week. I'm sure it's common to you. But for guys like me, that's very amazing. I'm astounded. When I read things like that, I'm like, are you kidding me? Now, unfortunately, we're a little jaded on that because we've all seen the preacher on TV that says, if you'll send $19.99, he'll send you one of his handkerchiefs. And if you'll just talk. And I, listen, unfortunately, it became uh, exploited and marketed in our generation. But don't let that negative reality in our generation take away from the supernatural reality that God used aprons and napkins and handkerchiefs to work powerful, amazing, astounding miracles. Um, Look at the authority also. So you've got these miracles, you've got the anointing, and you've got the solid authority. Paul said, uh, the, Luke writes that when Paul, when these things were laid upon the sick, their diseases left them. And, and demons came out of the people. Now, I want you to go there with me. Sometimes we let our Bible read like a, kind of like a book of fables. So what we're learning here is that in the city of Ephesus, a city dominated by satanic power, there were people that were indwelt by foul spirits. We know them as demons. I grew up on the King James, and they were called devils. And, and these are fallen, angelic spirits that were evicted out of glory because of their siding with Satan and his rebellion against God. And they're constantly looking for human vessels in whom to work. They hate human beings because human beings are made in the image of God. And so because we are made in the image of God and because demons hate God, they hate anything that might reflect his glory. And so what they want to do is the will of their master, Satan, and he came to steal, kill, and destroy. And so demons, this is all they want to do. They know they will never, they, they're actually cognitively, cognitively aware of the reality. They will never defeat Jesus Christ. So their mission is one of unbridled rage and hatred. They know they will never win, but they have not quit, and they certainly have not submitted. So what do they want to do? They want to harm. They want to steal. They want to kill. They want to maim. They want to destroy. And by the way, you're not immune from it in the sense of, yes, if they had a chance, were it not for the grace of God on your life, were it not for the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, were it not for the fact that you're protected by not only God, but by angels that have been assigned to your life, you too could fall prey to the demonic, uh, the demonization that characterizes many parts of the world this very day. But, but what's, what's astounding to me is Paul was so operating in the anointing of God that they would take those things and they would, his handkerchiefs or whatever, and they would lay them upon the people and the demons would say, get out, we've got to go. The anointing of the Almighty is here through this one named Paul. And they would leave. You know, God has throughout history not only used human beings, but um, let's not rewrite our Bibles. Let's just, let's just be thoroughly biblical and acknowledge that Moses had a rod that was endued with power, and he could hold it up and split seas. Samson 
had long hair. And when he grew up, now Samson's not your best character reference. You're not necessarily wanting to model your life after him, but you don't want to take away that this conflicted man had the power of God when his locks were long. You cut his hair off, he can't do anything. But when his hair was growing, and then you've got, you've got things, other things in Scripture, you've got like Peter's shadow that would pass over people. Peter's shadow would pass over people, and they'd get up where they had been afflicted before. And even Jesus himself is passing through a crowd one day, and a woman that was hemorrhaging in her body for 12 years touches his, the, just the fringe of his garment, and instantly that fountain of blood is dried up. She's healed. So I just want to say this. Let's relieve room in our theology and our lives to allow God to be God. It doesn't have to make sense to us in order for it to be validated in the kingdom. You don't want to come to a place where you think you understand God. Adrian Rogers, that great old Baptist preacher, one of my favorite Baptist preachers, he said, I would not have any confidence in a God that I could fully understand. And so let's just let the mystery be there. So that's what I, I wanted to open up with is the reality that the Apostle Paul is in, in a terrible city. And the Apostle Paul is not surrounded by rah, 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 go Paul. He's surrounded by a demon-infested, decadent culture full of darkness, full of the occult, full of immorality, both heterosexual and homosexual, full of that. It's just a big cesspool of sin. And what does he do? He just works his fingers to the bone, making tents all day. Then he ministers to anybody that'll listen, and he casts out demons, and he raises the sick and heals the afflicted, and he just preaches the gospel. So I just want to say it's, it's not our circumstances that we can blame for not living in the power and the fullness of the Spirit. If Paul can do it there, I can do it here in a, in a culture that is uh, far different than what he was experiencing in Ephesus. So that's not really my message tonight. That's just kind of to whet your appetite. I really want to get to these guys that, that learned a really hard lesson on this singular day in Acts 19. I call them ministerial deceivers. And here's their pretending. Verse number 13 gives us a little info about their reputation. They were known as itinerant Jewish exorcists. That just doesn't fit my grid. I, I don't really think of Jewish exorcists, but these were traveling Jewish exorcists living not in Jerusalem, not, not near the holy city, but they're, what are they doing in this pagan, Gentile, occultic city? Well, I'll tell you what they're doing. They're making money. They're going around, and in some way, we're not told whether they had any kind of genuine ability to deliver people from demons, or if it was all hocus-pocus, or could it be possibly that the enemy was empowering them to do a little hocus-pocus so that the people would be drawn unto them and not drawn unto Paul? We really don't know. But we do know that their reputation was that this group would travel around and they would say, oh, if you're afflicted by a demon, if you're foaming at the mouth, if you're falling rigid, if your eyes are rolled back in your head, if you're talking in uh, uh, crazy voices or you've got a loved one that is, if you have superhuman strength, if you've got this intense decadence about you where you can't stop the impulses of your flesh, you're probably possessed by Beelzebub and we happen to know how to rid you of this affliction. So people would bring them, and it's highly likely that they're traveling, and they're earning money, and they're doing their thing. There was a lot of that kind of superstition in Ephesus. And so these guys show up, but now I want to move from their reputation to their presumption, because they crossed a line, and God said, that's enough. And it's, it's found there in verse number 13 at the end of it. It says that they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you 
by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Okay. So if you grew up with an older sibling of the same gender, you probably got what was called, uh, commonly called hand-me-downs, right? It wasn't yours, but you, you had to wear it. It, it. it was already worn out. It was secondhand. When I look at these guys, I'm like, y'all have got secondhand ministry. Y'all are borrowing from Paul's ministry and trying to put it on yourself, and it is not going to fit you well. These guys are going up, and this is their message. They're invoking the name of Jesus because they've heard that Paul ministers and delivers and heals and raises the dead through this name Jesus. But they don't know him. They're not saved. They certainly aren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They know the name, but they know nothing of the power. They have a belief system, but they don't have any authority. And so they are coming up against the devil. Now, here's my guess. I, you can disagree with me if, if you'd like to. I could be wrong. But my guess is, is that this is not the first time they had tried to use the name of Jesus. I know how the Father works. He will have mercy even on the unregenerate. And so it might have been that they had tried a few times to use the name of Jesus, and it hadn't worked, but they thought, maybe we're not saying it right. Let's, let's try it a little louder. Jesus! And, or maybe they wanted to say it a little more intensely. Jesus! You know? And so they're trying all these superstitious kind of ways, and they're just using names to add to their arsenals of all the different ways they've been casting out demons. And so what they're technically doing even as Hebrews, although they didn't regard Jesus as God the Son, but they're literally, unknowingly, taking the name of the Lord their God in vain. Because they're employing the name of Jesus, and they have no legitimate claim to even call on his name. Because they've never received him. They've never bowed to him. They aren't walking with him. Let, let me just give you this. There's a lot of churchy language. You hang around in a church long enough... And by the way, I was a church member uh, from birth to age 14. I knew all of this. I was as lost as a dolphin in the desert. I mean, I was, I, I, but I was in the church. I, w I got baptized. I would take communion. I learned the books of the Bible. I went to VBS. I went to Sunday school. I sang in the kids' choir. I did all of that stuff. I could answer questions about Jesus. I would pray in the name of Jesus. But the one thing I wasn't willing to do is surrender to Jesus. But I picked up on all the lingo so I could pass the tests. So these guys had the lingo, but they didn't have the Lord. And so when they came up against an individual who was literally inhabited by the personnel of hell, when they came up against him, they used their secondhand faith. They said, we call out the name of Jesus. He's the one that Paul preaches. Demon, come out of this person. Now, if it wasn't so intense, this reads kind of funny. I don't know if y'all have a warped sense of humor, but I've confessed mine many times here. But I, I don't want to be lighthearted with this because, I mean, I guarantee you they weren't laughing. But watch what happens here. Let's pretend we've not read it before. These guys are identified as the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva. And they were doing this. I want you to think about that. These are descendants of Abraham. These are people of the covenant, at least by their bloodline. Um, the, these are in the lineage of Jacob, of Israel. And of all places, they're from the holy priestly tribe of Levi. And their dad is one of the 24 high priests 
that were living at that time. They had an inroad to all things kingdom, but there was some bend in their heart to where they didn't want their daddy's religion. They they didn't want to get into all the Judaism. They wanted to be their own thing. So seven brothers hit the road with a traveling exorcism ministry, and they left dad doing whatever dad was doing probably back in Jerusalem. And so here comes their interruption in verse number 15. They were just trucking. They were strutting around doing their thing, but... Uh, the Lord was going to let them get a little taste of what the enemy can do. So in verse number 15, it says, The evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now, let's just let that kind of simmer for a minute. You see, the demons know Jesus. They saw the Son of God pre-incarnate sitting on his throne. They were once part of that holy band of angels that were called to worship and minister to the Lord in glory, pre-earth. And that was their job. They, They would sing, they would worship. God created the angelic realm to sing and to worship and to praise and to serve Him. But they listened to Lucifer, and with Lucifer they rebelled against the Most High God, and God cast them. He evicted them out of heaven. They came down to earth, and they entered into their ministry of death and destruction. But they knew who Jesus was, and they even knew who Paul was. I want you to think about that. The name of the Apostle Paul was known in hell. Why? Because he used to belong to them. Remember, he was the original Christian hunter, and they lost him. And then he became the great propagator of the gospel. Say hallelujah to grace, amen. The one who hated the Christians became the chief leader of the Christians in his generation. Why? Because the blood of Jesus transformed him. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, All things are made new. Old things pass away. And so Paul had experienced that transformational rebirth through an encounter with God. And the demon said, yeah, we're aware of Paul. He's messing up our system. He is a thorn in our flesh. And so they said, yeah, we know the Son of God, and we know his servant Paul, but you seven boys, we don't know you. Who do you think you are? They had no power. They had verbiage. They had style. They had technique. They had numbers. It's seven on one. Surely, seven strapping young Hebrew men could take care of this one guy, but what they didn't count on is they weren't just coming up against one human. They were coming up against the power of hell. And I want to just say something boldly here. I do not give the devil glory, but you do not want to mess with him on your own. You do not want to come up against the enemy in your flesh. And you don't have to be hunting him down. What I'm saying is you don't want to encounter him unprepared in your flesh. You may not be looking for him, but I can promise you this. He's out like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And these guys were about to get a chunk taken out of their behind because they were not ready to be dealing with the power of darkness. So what, what does it look like here? They, they just, they looked at him and I, I, you know, I just kind of like to... I don't want to just read the words. I want to envision the scene. So you got seven guys crowding around this one guy, and they're like, man, here we go. We're going to take care of business here. And then those icy words come, and it probably came in that demonic voice. You know, I don't know if you've ever... I've been around a couple of people that were being delivered from demonic possession. Only really two that I'm absolutely sure of were were indwelt by demons. And I remember the icy cold chill running through my veins when I looked into the eyes of this young woman back in 
uh, probably 1998, and I recognized, oh my goodness, this lady has a demon. And the room went cold, the whole atmosphere changed, and were it not for just my desperate dependence on the Lord and just a moment of positive faith, I'm telling you, that, that icy coldness is something I've only felt that one time, and I knew I was in the presence of something that was otherworldly. So these guys got a firsthand account of that. They didn't have the luxury of knowing that God was with them like I had that day. But so let's look at what happened. So now we've talked about Paul. We've talked about these seven fellas that were in way over their head. But let, let's just talk about this demon for a moment. We don't know his name. We just know that he was owning somebody. And I, he prevails over them. So this prevailing of this unholy achiever, he accomplished his mission. This is a place in your Bible where the devil won. The devil actually won. Now, look who he's fighting. He's not fighting one of, one of God's children. It's, it's one of the rare snapshots in Scripture where you, where you see what it looks like to be trying to match yourself up against the devil and his demons in your own power. And it's not pretty. And so what does it look like? First of all, we need to know this about the enemy. He's proactive. The evil one is proactive. The Bible says, the man in whom was the spirit leaped on them. How do you leap on seven people and win? How, how in the world? There was some supernatural, unholy, hell-fueled power that was on this one man, and he leaped on them. He was the aggressor. He was the one that he didn't wait for them to pick a fight. All they had was words, but he had a power that was otherworldly. And the Greek there indicates that he literally got them on the ground. I, I mean, I'm just, how did you get seven guys on the ground and get them to stay on the ground? You and I may not know, but the power of darkness in that man accomplished that. And so he was proactive, but don't, don't just stop there. Let's just go ahead and say it. And again, I'm not glorifying the devil. I'm, I'm expositing a text. The evil one is powerful in this passage. He mastered all of them and overpowered them. The Holy Spirit inspires Luke to write the book of Acts. And so these words are not just arbitrary. It'd be enough if the Bible just said that he leaped on them. But then it, the, the next segment is that he mastered them. That, that's enough. I mean, but the defeat goes even deeper. He not only mastered them, but he overpowered them. And so what we're getting is this picture of he's just pummeling them. He's bringing them down to the ground. He's got them all seven. He's mastered them. They can't get up. They can't move. They're getting pummeled. It's like the kingdom of darkness jujitsu. They've got them in a hold on the ground, and he, they're down. And the Bible's indicating that he's beating them. I mean, he's coming at them with superhuman strength. And their secondhand faith did not serve them. The Jesus whom Paul preaches. It'd just be a real good teaching moment for us to realize we cannot ride on the coattails of anybody else's walk with God. You know, I, I thank God. I, I believe in spiritual covering. I believe that there's a covering when you're united and active in, in a body of believers. I believe there's a covering on this house, Newbridge. I believe that. I believe there's a covering in a family when the heads of household are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that, that children have a measure of protection based on how their parents are walking with God. But there comes a time where you can no longer uh, ride on the coattails of somebody else's walk with God. It's just a good reminder that we all need to personalize our pursuit of Jesus. 
It's got to be individual. It's got to be perpetual. I'm not talking about works-based salvation. I'm just saying this. You're going to give an account for you, and nobody's going to be standing there with you that you can blame. Now, Lord, I would have really served you if it wasn't for my spouse or if it wasn't for my mama or if I'd had a daddy and all of that stuff. And listen, um, none of that stuff's going to matter. Ultimately, we come to the conclusion that, okay, this is me and Jesus, and he says I'm an overcomer. He says, I'm always made to triumph in him. He says that I'm more than a conqueror. And if he says that, that's all true. So I got to walk out this identity and I can't do it borrowing from somebody else's faith. And so we see that um, in the end, he really proved himself to be very proficient, this demon. It says, so he leaped on them, mastered them, overpowered them so that when they finally got up, they didn't go for round two. They fled, the Bible says. They fled out of that house. Now, this is where we laugh a little bit. Naked. Man, that's a bad day. (laughs) Naked and wounded. And they're in Ephesus, and Ephesus went 24-7. So there's always somebody out in the streets of Ephesus. So the guys who had been walking around, just picture, let's put it in modern-day terms. We pull up to a city in our ministry bus, and it's got our faces plastered on the side. And it says, the dynamic demon-casting-out team of, bum, bum, bum. it's got your name on it, it's got your logo, you're looking real cool and chic, and you come off the bus, and you're strutting, and you come down, and you see a demon-possessed man, and you follow him into this house, and the next thing that people see is you've taken off your bus, and you don't have a stitch of clothes on, you're just bleeding everywhere, and you're like, we're leaving the city. Now, I want you to think like that, because it didn't happen exactly like that, but it wasn't too far away from it. Uh, Your ministry is over at that point, by the way. The crowds are going to thin out a little bit. Um, You know, I, I think in our day that the characterization of God is always sweet and always nice and just kind of universally for everybody, that he's just basically a big kind of life coach who wants everybody to do good and feel good, you know. Um, you can't get that out of your Bible. Sometimes, and I'm, I'm talking probably more about the um, unregenerate culture and, and that idea that God is just some happy grandpa in the sky that wants everybody to have a great day. Uh, tell it to those guys. Because those guys had crossed the line to where the grace of God on their life was withdrawn from a moment. And he let them taste a little bit of what hell would be like. And they recognized that they had met their match. So the question is, okay, we could stop right there and we could all chuckle and high five ourselves and say, man, I'm glad that can't happen to me because I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit and I'm walking in the fire of God. And that's, that's not my point tonight. I want you to see what happened in the city Look at what happened to the people that watched this spectacle. Because it's amazing that God can take something as intense and scary and otherworldly as a demonic victory in that city. And God said, now I'm going to take what the devil thought was his victory. I'm going to turn it into my victory. That's exactly what the Lord did. So the devil thinks he's getting over for a moment. The demon thinks he's won the day, but God's just sitting on his throne laughing. And and what these demons meant for evil, God's about to turn it for good. See, the demons got to keep this guy, but they're about to lose thousands in the city. See, the demon held on to that one vessel that he had held on to. At least he wasn't delivered in this passage. 
But as the demon might have been rejoicing that he conquered these seven punks that thought that they could uh, exercise him out of the sky, what God did was he took that momentary victory of the enemy and he inverted it and he turns it into a revival. I just want you to read this with me. Maybe I'll just let the text speak here. So they run out of the house naked and wounded. Bad day in Ephesus for those guys. They get back on the tour bus and they head to uh, calmer seas. So go down into verse number 17, eight, last, last verses. So watch what happens in the city. First of all, the people couldn't ignore the facts. Okay, verse number 17. This became known, this event became known to all the residents of Ephesus. It would be like literally Las Vegas reading the headlines or on the, on, on the web one morning and the worst, it just goes viral. Everybody hears about what happened to these seven guys. And so it says the Jews heard it, the Greeks heard it, still in verse 17. And look at what happens. Fear falls on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's just a $5 word that just means the name of the Lord Jesus was highly regarded. It was exalted. Something shifted to where these seven vagabond exorcists used the name of the Lord Jesus with no authority, no, no covenant, no relationship, no power, and it failed them miserably. But the response of the people in the city when they beheld it Somehow, it, it, it exalted the name of Jesus. They, they realized, oh my goodness, that demon knew who Jesus was. That demon knows who Paul is, and Paul's the one that has been preaching to us about Jesus. And what you seem to have the picture here is of some people who had in some way given mental assent to the gospel. But when they saw this, everything they had ever heard about Jesus just kind of became grave and sober, and it got intense in their heart, and they started magnifying Jesus. Now, it doesn't seem that it was a celebration. I, I love to celebrate. I, I just think that we don't have enough celebration in the body of Christ. I think we need to celebrate more and more. But that is not exclusive. Sometimes we worship in gravity, brokenness, sobriety, humility. There are times where the, the kavod of God, his glory, the doxa, the weight of God ought to be so wrapping itself around you that you don't even want to talk. There are times where literally you're not just in your heart bowing down, you're on your face physically because you are just overwhelmed and awed with the presence of God. And I think that's what happened in the city. And watch this. Because theirs was not just simply a verbal repentance. They brought forth fruit worthy of that repentance. Look with me down to verse number 18 and 19. As many of those who were now believers. You see, now the believers are starting to get consecrated. They came, believers, mind you, they came confessing. Confessing what? Well, what do we confess? Sin. And divulging their practices. They got raw. They got real. They got transparent. And the Bible says a number of those who had practiced magic arts, such as black magic, if you want to call it that, or voodoo, whatever you want to call it, they brought their books together. They brought their little occultic books together, and they burned them in the sight of all. Somebody, there was some accountant in the crew, and he, he's over there counting the value of everything that was being burned and repented of. 
And the value came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What, what does that tell us? That the Spirit of God hit Ephesus so hard on the aftermath of this demonic um, implosion and people started magnifying Jesus and the believers started realizing, good night alive, the devil's real. Hell is real. The war is real. And we're over here living a divided allegiance in the, in the cesspool of Ephesus. We're going to the synagogue to worship on the Sabbath while Paul's preaching the Messiah that we've received. But the other six days of the week, we're Ephesians. We are neck deep in Ephesian culture. They had not broken off from the, from the occult-like practices in that city. And by the way, it wasn't just simply books. If, if you were practicing and dabbling in the, the, the spirituality of Ephesus, it involved everything. It involved your mind. It involved your sexuality. It involved your body. I mean, it was, I, we got some young ears in here, so I'm not going to go into details. But it was about as raunchy as you could get. And some of these believers were still dabbling in it. And so they come to some kind of public meeting, and they're confessing their sins to one another. By the way, that's biblical, but you need to be wise in how you handle that. Somebody asked me not long ago, hey, are we ever going to have an open confession meeting? And I said, are you crazy? I was like, if you want to confess your sins to somebody, I will pair you up with somebody. Y'all can work it out and start a relationship. But we don't have open mic confession. You know, God forgives and forgets easily, but we have a hard time getting stuff out of our head once we've heard it. Amen? I don't know if that helped anybody or not, but I'm just letting you know, don't ask me that. The answer is no. But the reality is, is this wasn't an organized event in Ephesus. This was a spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit. And so people are repenting and confessing, and they're not just giving lip service to it. We don't, we don't talk a whole lot about repentance in the church. But I want you to know, your repenting began when you got saved, but it didn't stop when you get saved. You know, the illustration that Jesus gave to, to Peter uh, about wa John 13, washing the feet. And Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, I can't have anything to do with you. And then Peter said, well, then wash me all over. Wash me from the head down. And the Lord said, I don't need to do that. I just need to wash your feet. And the picture is that we are washed by the blood of Jesus. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We don't have to have that wash, rinse, repeat thing over and over again every day. But as we travel through life, we pick up some of the filth of the world. And there needs to be that, that lifestyle, that heart posture of being repentant towards God. You don't need to sleep on the sin you committed this afternoon. You also don't need to beat yourself up over it for 15 days. You need to confess it and repent. Forsake your wicked ways. Listen, I don't mind telling the church that. I know it's not popular anymore, but if you want to walk in the power of God, if I want to walk in the power of God, then we better keep short accounts of sin with the Lord. Because listen, if you are saved when you sin, the Holy Spirit says, time out. He says, that, that's beneath you. That's not to be part of your life. You've been washed from that. You have victory over that. You have power over that. That's not consistent with the character of the one who saved you and brought you into the kingdom. So my child, I'm going to empower you right now. Confess it with your lips and turn from it in your heart. And when you do that, you don't have to, you know, beat yourself on the back for the next week proving how sorry you are. When you, when you forsake it, he's not going to hold it in front of your face anymore. But I, I think one of the things that, that will happen before the Lord returns is the revival that is going to um, characterize the globe before the return, the second coming of Jesus, 
is going to be not only a revival of power, but it's going to be a revival of holiness. And so, brothers and sisters, let me just say it. I feel a heaviness in the room, so maybe somebody just is really working through this. This is not judgment. This is instruction that the Lord Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover and pay for any sin, but if you don't release that thing, he can't touch it. When we treasure our sin, it becomes poison in our soul. And so these people came, and there was a repentance that characterized this whole city. And by the way, it cost them something. You know, 50, why is that in the Bible? 50,000 pieces of silver. Why is that footnote even in there? Well, it's almost the way of the whisper of the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, true repentance is costly. Sometimes it'll cost you a relationship with somebody. Sometimes it'll cost you a practice that has profited you, but you know in your heart of hearts it's not blessable by God. Sometimes it'll cost you your own reputation, and you have to lay your pride down and get some help from somebody. I remember the hardest thing for me before I, before I got saved, and I, I thought I was a believer, but I was in deep with the bondages of alcohol and drugs. And I just, the hardest thing was, it wasn't that I loved the drugs and the alcohol so much as I, I loved my reputation. I didn't want to have to go to my friends or family and say, hey, look, I need help. But true repentance, you get to the point where you want nothing more than to be free from your sin and free in your relationship with God. And so you press in, you say, I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about what's going to happen if I lose this person in my life. I don't, I don't care about the peripheral stuff. I, I want the gap between me and the Father closed via repentance. So let me give you this last thing, and then we'll, we'll cut loose. So they didn't come up short. They repented, full repentance. It's beautiful. And they didn't fail to embrace God's plan. Look at verse number 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily um it's not unpacked probably to to the degree we want it but friends those are descriptors of a citywide revival when a city as decadent as ephesus repents burns the the tenets of all their old sin confesses it publicly and on the back end of that the bible says and from that they cleared the way through their repentance, and the word of God began to advance. Salvation began to take a deeper, deeper hold in that city. As, as we close tonight, this is, this is just something I want you to consider and pray into. I wonder what kind of breakthrough and power and glory and miracles and supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is building up but can't go any further until the church in a city repents and then it goes forward. That literally, it's not just about me repenting of my sin or you repenting of your sin, but what happens when, when and it's funny, you can't tell what causes what. Is it the repentance that brings the revival or is it the revival that brings the repentance? The answer is yes. That, that, that these two things go hand in hand. And I believe, I, I literally believe this. Billy and I were talking, Billy Humphrey and I were talking about this today, that God wants to do something in this little podunk city of Lawrenceville. That he literally, it's not just about IHOP. It's not just about Newbridge. It's not just about um, this, this tiny little section that we're seeing it. I can't name names of other churches, but I'm going to when I have permission that God's doing something in some churches that, Right now, in, I mean, talking within 10-mile radius of this church, 
that I'm, I'm just sitting back and I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm seeing it coming there, but I'm knowing that it's already coming here. But the only thing that concerns me is will we get serious enough about it to repent of everything that God puts his almighty finger on? Maybe things that we've just learned to live with and all of a sudden we're getting convicted about. Maybe it's things that everybody else in the, you know, your, your network is, is fine with. But now the Holy Spirit's saying, I'm going to cleanse this area in your life. You don't think it's a big deal, but I'm gonna, I want you to trust me with it, child. I want you to just turn that over to me, and I'm going to put blessing there in its place. If a church will do that, if this church will do that, do you think God would honor that or not? And here's the thing. Um, we don't police lives around here. Your leadership doesn't do it. It's not on us to police your lives, to be hanging out in your shrubs at 12 o'clock at night, peeking in your windows. I knew she was doing that. That's not what we're about. It's on you to police your own heart, and you do it. You do it not in the spirit of fear, not in the spirit of paranoia, but you do it in the spirit of sonship, meaning you're trusting your father as he's taking you to places that you need to mature in. And when that holiness comes, there's a cleansing power that comes. And I just believe that there is an immeasurable, an unquantifiable um, amount of breakthrough that is ready to be offered us. I just don't know if it's going to happen without a large-scale humbling of ourselves before the Lord. Humble, humility and hunger go hand in hand. When you're hungry for God, Humility won't be intimidating to you. You'll humble yourself as low as you need to go in order to say, God, I have to taste further and see that you're good. And when we do that as a city, when we do that as a church, I expect nothing less than what we see in Ephesus. It all began with one individual believer, a guy who made tents for a living, who came into a city and said, I'm going to work all day on my tents, and then I'm going to teach and then I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to work through me in power. One dude. And the whole city eventually broke into revival to the point where, yeah, the enemy might have claimed one guy that day, but God claimed the rest of the city. So, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we want all that you have, Lord. I pray that you'll continue to shepherd our souls to where we want it deeply enough, to where nothing else matters. We want revival, Holy Spirit, not counterfeit, not neon, not plastic, not social media-worthy revival. We want genuine, authentic, delivering revival. We want, we want to see the fruits of mass salvation through mass repentance. We want to see the transformation of the weak and the afflicted into the potent and strong. We want to see all of those things that we see in the book of Acts. So we just posture ourselves for a moment here tonight. and We say, Lord, we are so willing. And in any area where we aren't willing, we are willing to be made willing. So work, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are. I pray, Lord, that you will pour fertilizer on the hearts of those 
tonight where you touched an area of their heart. Lord, I just pray it would not grow dormant, but that it would blossom. We trust you. You're a gloriously good father. You're an awesome shepherd. And you are a majestic king, and we want our all to be laid before your throne. We ask this, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.